Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. And this is one I really want to linger on. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Okay, stop there a sec. So God shows up in person. Right? Wouldn't we all love that? And he has this wonderful reiteration of the promise. Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward should be very great. Abram is almost sarcastic in his tone. Really? Really? What are you going to give me? Right? Uh, I'm, I've got this person in my house uh, is going to be my heir. Apparently, even then, they did some kind of rudimentary estate planning because he has designated an heir. Right? This person is going to inherit everything. But what are you going to give me? And to reiterate the point, in case you missed that, he goes on again, another sentence, said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir, Lord. In case you didn't understand the first sentence, let me say it again. This is all your fault. That's really bold. Right back at God. Okay, now what does God do? Does God say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, trust you? No. Go ahead. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. This wonderful story. Go outside and count the stars, Abraham. Count the stars, right? And what has Abraham respond? Incredible verse. Go ahead. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Stop a second. This, this verse is quoted again in Romans, James, and Galatians. This verse was one of the cornerstones of the Protestant Reformation. Luther looked at this and said, wait a second, this is how it works. My sin is transferred to Jesus, and his righteousness is given to me, right? And, and it, he believed God, and it was, rec- it was credited to him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness through his belief, not through his works, right? There's a huge verse right here. So fantastic. Now, Abraham believed God. He saw the stars, believes everything is great, right? Go ahead. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So that's a reiteration of the promise. Once again, God says, I am the Lord. I gave you this. Go ahead. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So right again, God has just shown him the stars. He has this great verse where he believes. It's credited to him as righteousness. It's wonderful. And and God reiterates the promise. And then what does he do? Doubts him to his face again. How do I know? How will I know? I know you're saying that. I hear you saying that. I heard it again. How will I know? Now, even after he had this wonderful star, the statement of belief, still doubt. Okay, go ahead. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. Now, I think those of you going to our church, CCC, you've heard this story preached on a couple times from the pulpit there. Keller does an incredible job of talking about it. 
I think most of you know how this goes, so I'm not going to belabor this point, okay? We'll go through it fairly quickly. But the first time I heard the description of this was from Keller, and I was just, just blown away to understand it. So if you haven't heard, for the few of you who maybe haven't heard this, we'll go over in a little detail. What is, what is happening here is a covenant ceremony. And when God says, take these animals and cut them in half, yeah, God just says, get some animals. Abraham knows exactly what to do. Abraham gets them and cuts them in half because it's going to be a contract covenant ceremony. And these ancient cultures, it was not a written culture. It's not like signing a contract like we do today. When they wanted to make agreement, this is the way they would make an agreement. Take these animals, cut them in half, separate the animals. And if we're going to make a contract with each other, you and I will walk through the pieces together, basically in a river of blood. And what we're saying is, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may it be done to me as it is to these animals. A very visible sign of our contract with each other. But the thing about these contracts was, was that's, that's fine if it's two peers. But a king making a contract with a subject would never walk through the pieces. He says, well, you have to uphold your bargain to me, but I'm the king. I don't owe you anything, right? So with that, go ahead. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So, two things. Abram would have seen the pieces cut up, sat there, fell into this deep, dark sleep, and he was waiting for God to say, Abram, Abram, wake up, wake up. Now your turn to walk through the pieces. Go. It doesn't happen. Two huge surprises in this story. One is God passes through the pieces. The king, God passes through the pieces. That would have been shocking to Abraham. What is God doing passing through the pieces? So God is saying, Abram, let me tell you how you'll know about my promise. If I don't keep up my promise, may I be cut up. May I be cut off. May this happen to me. Even though I am God, may this happen to me. That's the first surprise. But the second surprise is that the ceremony just ends. Abram is never himself called to walk through the pieces. So the, the shocking thing about this covenant is that God is saying, look, how do you know that I'll hold up my end of the bargain? I'm going to walk through the pieces. And if, it, and if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. So I will hold up my end of the bargain. But Abram, I'm going to hold up your end of the bargain too. If I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be cut up. If you don't keep your end of the bargain, may I be cut up. It's a unilateral. Unilateral contract. God is saying, I, my promise is I will keep the obligations for both of us. And it's unconditional. It's not if you play your cards right, do the right thing. It's a complete unconditional promise in a unilateral contract. Shocking. Now, of course, what we know this means in the gospel, because centuries later, a deep darkness fell on somebody else from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Right. And that, of course, was Jesus walking to the pieces for us. If you say, Abraham said, God, when am I ever going to see you being cut up? And of course, on the cross, that was Jesus. And this from, from Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. This is the great answer in Genesis 15 of how God can be both the just and the justifier. And the phrase I want you guys to remember is this. The creator is the redeemer. The creator is the redeemer. In other faith traditions, they will say, uh, Jesus is not God. He is the son of God. And he is a created being. Sometime before time immemorial, God created the son. 
And when it came time to save the world, God sent that son to the cross, and it was very sad. Because he loved that son, it was very, very difficult. That is not what Genesis 15 says. That would be, be difficult for God to say, I'm going to sacrifice this created being because I love this created being. Genesis 15 is saying, God itself says, I myself am the one who's going to pay the price. The creator doesn't create an object to be the redeemer. The creator is the redeemer. This is huge. And Keller talks, when Keller preaches on this, he says, this passage, Genesis 15, is the gospel. And it's more of the gospel than Romans, even than Romans. Because in Romans, Paul talks about the gospel. Here, God is actually showing me and saying, I will demonstrate to you what substitutionary atonement means. I will walk to the pieces for you. And of course, that's what Jesus did on the cross. Huge story, Genesis 15. If we did nothing else today but talk about Genesis 15, that's enough. But wait, there's more. It goes on. Genesis 16. There's this business about Sarah and Hagar. We won't cover this in any detail, but obviously uh, Abram and Sarah getting impatient. Sarah says, sleep with my servant Hagar. That's, it turns out to be just awful. Hagar runs away. She's a fugitive slave. God appears to her in the desert, says, go back. You got to go back uh, to the, the household. She does. And there's actually this verse. So I'll just pause here for a second. It's, I've always stumbled on, it's always troublesome to me in Galatians. And it says, referring to this episode, it says, this is allegorically speaking for these women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children, who is to be a slave, she is Hagar, and so on. And I always read those verses in Galatians and said, I don't get it. What does it mean? It's just confusing to me. And it's actually not that hard. It's pretty simple. Uh, Isaac was a son of promise. That is great salvation through grace alone, because that is the way God is going to save through his grace. Hagar was represented works salvation when they took matters in their own hand and said, we're going to find our own way to figure this out. So that was works salvation versus salvation by grace alone through faith. And that's the contrast between Hagar and Isaac. But enough of that. Genesis 17, Abraham has his 99th birthday. God says, walk before me and be blameless. God renames them here, Abraham and Sarah, as we know them. He reiterates his promise. Abraham laughs. We always remember Sarah laughing when God says, you're going to have a son. Abraham actually laughs as well. They both laugh. And then the rite of circumcision is instituted, which we won't talk about today. Then Genesis 18. This is the beginning of the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll linger here for a second because Abraham has spent half a chapter pleading, pleading with God. And the thing I want you to notice here, he is arguing not to save Lot out of Sodom. He spends half a chapter actually arguing to save the city of Sodom. So this is, you remember, this is the chapter where he says, Lord, okay, if, I know you're going to, God says, I'm going to destroy the city. And he says, if there are 50 righteous people there, will you save the city? Well, yes, I say, if there's 50 righteous there, I'll save the city. Okay, please bear with me. If there are 40, will you save the city? Yes, 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 there's 40. So on and so on. It's a half a chapter. It's like, you think it's like a Middle Eastern bazaar, back and forth, bargaining, bargaining, bargaining. And he's pleading with God. If there are only 10 righteous, would you save the city? Yes, yes, yes. What's this all about? He's, for the, the thing to note, Abram could have said, oh, yeah, Sodom. That's a wicked city. I hate those wicked cities. Burn it. Torch that city. They deserve it. He doesn't do that. You know, he would have known some of those people because he rescued them in the battle. He knew the king, right? He's arguing, please save Sodom. Very odd. Not rescue my son. And the other thing to notice, he doesn't argue with God's law. He doesn't say, oh, God, lighten up. You're not that bad. I mean, you got your rules and that kind of stuff. But, you know, those rules should be, should be flexible. 
There should be guidelines. And you say they're not righteous, but who is? Come on, you should take it easy. He didn't do any of that at all. He goes in, he acknowledges the righteous law of God. He says, Lord, it's as if he knows, never argues. Your righteous law says your command has to be obeyed. Sin has to be punished. I'm not arguing that. You are absolutely 100% righteous God. You see, he is walking up that upper line a little bit. He's getting a view that God is absolutely holy. But he, but he says, if, if anything, can you save the city? What he argues for is an exchange. And this is significant because this is the first time in the Bible this whole concept comes up. And it's a huge theological principle and a theological shift. You see, with Noah, Noah was righteous. And God said, I'm going to save you because you are righteous. And all those people are going to drown in the flood. They're wicked. They're going to live and die by their own righteousness. They're wicked. They're going to drown. You're righteous. You're going to be saved. And Abram is saying here, God, is it possible to transfer righteousness? Is, can there be, in your great ledger, where you keep all the record of wrongs, I'm not arguing with that. That's absolutely right. Is it possible, though, for few righteous people, for their righteousness to be enough to save the city? And God is responding in principle, saying, you know, it's possible. I'm not going to do it. I'm still burning the city tomorrow, but it's possible, right? And then that ends the chapter. Just fascinating that Abraham argues with God for half a chapter on behalf of Sodom and establishes principle of the exchange of righteousness that it's possible. We'll come back to this a little later. Now, chapter 19, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, pillar of salt, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. Chapter 20, Abraham and Abimelech. There's another story uh, where Abraham, it's a very simple story. Abraham is wandering in the desert again, says, these people don't fear God. I've got to save my own skin. Sarah, why don't you lie and say you're my sister? The exact same thing he did in Egypt. And the more modern theologians, some, some liberal theologians look at this and say, see, now this is evidence that Genesis had multiple authors because it's pretty much the same story. And why would it be the same story again? So some multiple author came by and saw the earlier story about Egypt and lying about Sarah and kind of rewrote it with some different, different characters, but it's just a repetition of the same story. So, and, and that completely misses the point. Wholesale, 100% misses the point of the story. This story is usually significant, which we'll, which we'll come back to the end. I'll show you later. The story is usually significant, but Abraham does this again, where he lies about Sarah and he doesn't wake up just like in Egypt. He doesn't have a moment of awareness where he says, what am I doing? God has to come to Abimelech in, in a dream and say, don't touch her. She's someone else's wife. And Abimelech comes, just like in Egypt, Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, what have you done? So in this story, what the scholars note is this story is a repeat of the fall. And Sarah plays the role of the forbidden fruit. Beautiful to look at, right? She's the forbidden fruit. Abimelech is in the role of Adam thinking about taking the forbidden fruit. Guess who's the serpent? Abraham. He's the deceiver in this story, right? After all these years of walking with the Lord, same exact sin that he did back when he was in Egypt. So keep that in mind. Genesis 21, the next chapter, Isaac is born. Son of laughter. It's wonderful. Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. This time, this is kind of an important detail. They are sent away. They're not running away. So they're not fugitive slaves on the run. They're actually free, and Ishmael can grow up in the desert. This is the part where God opens Hagar's eyes, and she sees the well of water, and they're saved. Now, this is it. Genesis 22. 
the climax of the whole story. Abraham is tested. We're not going to read it together. I'll, I'll summarize the story for you here because I think we all know it. It's a very familiar story. God says to Abraham, I got a test for you. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. Abraham and Isaac walk three days' journey, and God says, go to the place where I'll show you. I'll tell you later. They start walking. Three days they walk together. Isaac carries the wood. Abraham has chopped the wood, puts on Isaac. Isaac carries the wood. At some point, Isaac turns to him and says, Father. Abraham says, yes, my son. He says, the wood is here and the fire is here. He doesn't, he doesn't mention the knife. So where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says, God will see to it. God will provide, right? Your translation probably says God will provide. This is another one with that Hebrew wordplay where it basically says God will see. And, the, the, that, and that's interpreted God will see to it. God, God is seeing everything. God knows. God will see to it that there's a lamb. God will provide. Then, of course, the commentators all comment on this. So much of Abraham's life is just in fast, fast motion, just like I did, breezing through these stories. He's wandering in the desert. Years and years are covered in one verse. You get to this point in the narrative, the whole thing goes into super slow-mo. He takes his son. He binds his son. He puts him on the altar. He takes the knife. The whole movie goes into super slow-mo. And of course, as we all know, God at the last minute says, stop, do not sacrifice your son, right? Now I know, Abraham, that you love me because you did not withhold from me your son, your only son, whom you love from me. They see a ram, they lift up their eyes, see a ram caught in a thicket, there's a sacrifice. They sacrifice that ram instead of Isaac. Abraham builds an altar there, and he calls the altar, God will provide, God sees. Okay, now, what can we learn from this? This story gives people fits. This story is, for thousands of years, people struggle with this story. At all kinds of walks of life, people say, this story is rough. What, what is God doing asking for child sacrifice? I thought God was against child sacrifice. Why would God ask for child sacrifice? And why does Abraham even do it? Why is God testing him? The people really wrestle with this story and try to make sense of it. And, and it's been around for thousands of years. Constant, like, consternation. What, what in the world does this mean? So, part of the setup is that, is that it's, a, it's a test of Abraham. Sacrifice is in God's desire. The point is to teach Abraham something. And the key to understanding the whole story, I think, is Abraham's silence. God says, I want you to offer up your son as a sacrifice. And Abraham just starts walking. Oh, yes, but more than that. He's, he's, he's obeying God. He's walking away in silence. Abraham spent half a chapter arguing for this evil people of Sodom. Abraham doubted God to his face. Kind of sarcastically, Abraham said, you know, how will I know? What are you going to give me? Abraham had no compunction with arguing with God. God says to him, now that Isaac's here and the promise is going to be fulfilled, I want you to go sacrifice this son to me. And what does Abraham do? Silence. He doesn't argue with God. You would think he would say, God, you don't have to do this. It doesn't have to be this way. Surely there's something else we can do. He doesn't do that. He walks with silence. 
That's a huge part of the story. The way to understand this is this whole firstborn thing, and I would never have gotten this if, if Keller and other commentators hadn't explained this, but in ancient culture, like I said, family was everything. And within family, the firstborn was everything. The firstborn was everything. So one, one explanation here is that God is saying, look, Abram, there's a chance that what's happening is Ike is becoming an idol in your life. And that's going to be far too important to you. You're going to take a good thing and make an ultimate thing. So I'm going to make sure that uh, in an act of obedience that you're not turning Isaac into an idol. That's, that's an interesting idea. But when God is undermining the firstborn rule again and again, what he is saying is that every, every family owes a debt of sin to me that must be paid. And we think, as individual West, in a Western culture, we say, think that of that individually. Every individual owes a debt of sin that must be paid. But what God is saying is the firstborn, by this whole rule of usurping the firstborn, he's saying every family owes a debt of sin to me that must be paid. So the firstborn was extremely important in this culture, but God had his own rules about the firstborn. And here's a quote from a scholar named uh, Von Popta. He said, every firstborn male creature was the Lord's. The Israelites were to sacrifice every firstborn male animal of their livestock, of their clean domestic animals, cattle, sheep, and goats. The firstborn human son, on the other hand, was to be redeemed. The Lord rejected human sacrifice, and yet the firstborn son of every Israelite family was special to the Lord. That son was supposed to be devoted to the Lord to a life of service at the tabernacle. However, the Lord chose the tribe of Levi to do this work as a substitute for the firstborn sons of the other tribes. But the firstborn son was incredibly important to the Lord. And you see this principle in the Passover, where in the Passover, if, they just, if there's not the blood of the lamb on the door, every firstborn son dies. God is saying, every family owes a debt of sin to me. And, this, and the significance of this, at this point in Abraham's life, when he doesn't argue back to God, even though he'd argued for Sodom, he doesn't, say, he doesn't sass back to God at all, is Abraham is saying to God, you're right. You're right. I agree. When God says, Abraham, you have no claim of righteousness on your own. You have nothing. Abraham's silence is him saying, you're right. And that's, and, and you know why he's saying that? Abimelech, the story of Abimelech, as far as Abraham had progressed in his life, as far as he had come, he did the exact same sin later in his life, just as he did when he was younger. And he would look at that and say, I haven't made any progress at all. I haven't made any progress at all. If he had done anything, if he had seen his life as having any spiritual progress, he said, Lord, we, we talked about this, right? I've... I certainly, there's some righteousness in me that can be transferred to Isaac. You don't have to do this. There's some righteousness somewhere. You've got to admit, Lord, I made a lot of progress, right? I'm, I'm, I'm way beyond. I don't care about fortune nearly as much as I used to. I made a lot of progress, Lord. He, if Abraham was living on the single line, he would have said, Lord, I used to be a two out of 10. Now, I mean, you've got to admit I'm at least a six. I've made spiritual progress. Some of that counts for something. You don't have to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham doesn't even bother because Abraham has become more like Paul. Abraham is starting to see his life as the chief of sinners. He's moved up that line. He says, Lord, Lord God, you are holy. You are righteous. Sin demands payment. No argument for me, but Lord, I am completely lost. Look what I did with Abimelech. Again, I have made no spiritual progress. I, I'm a lost sinner. But even Abraham knows something has to stand in the gap. Right? Something has to stand in the gap. And that's why Isaac looks at him and says, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? I think at this point, Abraham's like, I don't know. I don't know. 
God's going to have to solve it. God's going to have to close that gap. God's going to have to figure it out somehow. So the whole thing of child sacrifice is really horrific, right? But the, the scholars say this is actually not the most horrific thing. Because Abraham would have been saying, you're right, I deserve it. But he has three days to march in silence with his son. Three days to walk there. What do you do when you're coming at this point in your life? Your whole life flashes before your eyes. Your whole life flashes before your eyes. So while he's walking, you just say, God, what, a, what about Genesis 12? What about the promise? You, in Genesis 12, you said you're going to make a great nation. This is the great nation, Isaac. What, what was that all about? You promised you're going to make a great nation out of me. And you know what God is saying to him? It's like God is saying, you know what? You have that great nation thing, that promise business. We're done. I'm done. I've given you time and again, chance again and again to show yourself, Abraham. You have blown it every time. That's what he says. You're right. You're right. I have. But then Abraham would have thought and said, well, what about Genesis 15? What about the pieces? The whole ceremony. You walked through the pieces for both of us. Remember? You knew I couldn't keep up my end of the bargain. That's why you did this. This was supposed to be an unconditional promise for me. I can never hold up my end of the bargain. You are going to hold up the bargain for both of us. And it's like, in this conundrum, how can God be both holy and a God of holiness and a God of grace at the same time? How can God be a God of holiness and a grace at the same time? How can he be both just and justifiable at the same time? And that's why Abraham says the answer is the land God will provide. Because as we know as Christians, that centuries later, another son walked up a mountain with wood on his back. Deep darkness fell over him. Only in that ceremony, when just like Isaac looked up and said, Father, and Abraham said, yes, my son. When Jesus said, Father, he got silence, right? He got nothing. And at the moment of execution, there was nothing to stop it. The knife comes down on Jesus for us on our behalf as our substitute, and that's Jesus walking through the pieces for us as our substitute. So that's the, that's the magnificence of the lamb filling in the gap and the significance of the ram they caught in the thicket, filling the, the sacrificed lamb filling in the gap, paying for their sins for them. So if you think, how do I know God is there when I doubt? How do I know God sees what I'm going through? And how do I know that God really loves me? This whole story in the book of Abraham is for you. And now with that, I'll take questions and comments. I was just going to say it's astounding that, that God the Father killed his son so that Abraham didn't have to. Amen. Oh, thank you, Louis, because it makes me think of one very important part of the story that I left out completely. And it's actually the whole point of the story. So I'm glad you reminded me. When God looks at Abram and says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love. Obviously, as Christians, we know what that means. The point of the story is for us so that we can look at him and say, now I know, Lord God, that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. That's how we know that God loves us. Thanks for reminding me. Other questions, comments? Yeah. Uh, in Hebrews 11, I think it explains some more that that. And I'll read the passage. Go ahead. Abraham knew that God had already promised that Isaac was going to was going to carry on. Right. So he he knew he was going to do it. So I'll read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it shows that Isaac, is a, it absolutely points us to Jesus. And I think the other pastors, I think, Bob, you were talking about when Jesus, when Abram says to his friends, stay here. We, Isaac and I go to the mountain and then we will, re, and we will return. There's a statement of faith that somehow God's going to figure this out. God's going to provide lamb. God's going to close the gap. It's then God's going to solve this real for us. Yeah, thank you. It is right and good that we find this story of Abraham following the command of God to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22, morally abhorrent because child sacrifice is morally abhorrent. And it, 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 it is jarring when you put up your symphony themes. One of the themes that I really jumped out at me this year with Genesis was, was the blessing and promise of family. And we, we, especially with the patriarchs, you have Sarah who was barren and then she has the miraculous son and, the, and that'll be repeated with Isaac and Rebecca. But the idea is that children are good. Yes. And in our modern culture, that's something we lost sight of. I mean, all you, you just have to look at the demographic trends it's we no longer have the confidence of our own culture to create a future for it if we don't have children. Instead, we go around with these false religions. I'm going to save the world from climate change right. and all of this. And as one way put it, you want to change the world? Start by changing a diaper. <laughs> as you were talking about that, the one other thing that I kind of glossed over. When God walks through the pieces for us, and God says, this is a whole ceremony as a way of addressing Abram's doubt, right? Because Abram doubt, and God says, okay, bring out, the, bring out the pieces, bring out the animals, and we'll do this ceremony. He is giving him re visible reassurance. But what reassurance is that for us, right? Because he, it was great for Abram because he saw it right there in front of him, but for us. And the connection is, when you talk about the causes, this made me think about this. If, if we doubt, and we have doubts in our lives, and we all do, God says, you, you don't, I'm not going to crush you because you have doubt. But if we doubt and we say, let's say you doubt so much that you're going to leave the Christian faith. Like the story I told about the woman earlier who saw the conundrum in the Bible and left the Christian faith. If you doubt so much you leave the Christian faith, everything else, everywhere you go, makes you walk through the pieces. Everything else. And so uh, certainly Muhammad does not walk through the pieces for you. Buddha does not walk through the pieces for you. But if you live for your career, your career will make you walk through the pieces. Your career's not going to walk through the pieces for you. But even if you live for a great cause, if you say, I'm going to save the world, and this is what you said that it made me think about that. You say, I'm not going to live for those other trans transient things. I'm living for a great cause. The cause, even the cause will make you walk through the pieces. You always got to walk through the pieces. That this offer of God walking through the pieces just isn't on offer anywhere else. It's not available anywhere else, which is why I think Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Because no one else is no one else is offering to walk through the pieces for us. So sorry to riff on that, but thank you. You were even talking about the cause reminded me of that. Thanks. I think the thing that I got from reading this year was God knows exactly what each man needs. I think I look at it more from God's perspective. God knew Abraham needed to go through this 
to know what Abraham needed to know about God. Yeah. I'm reading uh, back along with what we're doing. I'm reading Oswald Chambers' book, Almost First Highest. It's God knows what we need to go through so that we can get to the point where God wants to use us. And I think Abraham may have looked good or whatever, but in his heart, he needed to go through this. Not only was it for Abraham, but it's also an example for Jesus Christ, right. for us to realize what God went through when he lost his son. So I look at it more of a different perspective, more from God's view and for humbling the man and just the amazingness of God in each individual's life. You see it in what he does with the disciples. He deals with them differently. Andrew or you know, everyone, he deals with them differently. He never berates them, but he tries to bring them along. And I think that's what he did with Abraham. That's why I got so much more out of Genesis. And I'm already a little ahead I'm about Joseph. I mean, you look at it, it's amazing how God knew what Joseph needed to become the man that he wanted to use. Right, right. I see the same thing with Abraham. And you look at Abraham and you look at Moses. These are men of special relationship with God as an example to me to try to and not in my own effort, but dependence upon God alone, his ability alone to work in my life to make me the man that God wants me to be, not my effort, kind yeah. of what you're, you're do with your thing. So no, that's my perspective. It's a great perspective. It's a good clarification. It's a, there's good principles you can learn from these people. Like when Abraham says, I'm coming off the single line, I'm moving to the double lines. I'm coming off of this idea that I have any merit or any claim to righteousness on my own, and I'm going to be in total dependence on your salvation, right? That's a great principle for all of us. But God is dealing with each individual in their own way. When he says, this is going to be an idol for you. It might not be for somebody else, but for you, it's going to be. And I've got to deal with that as you, an individual. And you're right. that God is so wonderful about that, right? There's these great principles for all of us, but there's also God teach each of us as individuals as well. Any other questions, comments? Yes, Jim. I, I, I was um, very impressed with Abraham. And, and, you know, to get the kind of character here and appreciate these characters, you sort of need to read the whole book, right? Because you have Abraham, then you have Isaac, then you have Jacob, right? right. And what a bum Jacob was. Uh, but I've read ahead, right? Deceiver. The deceiver and the manipulator the whole way. Abraham starts out after Lot gets taken captive and he... With 300 men, he goes and takes on these kings. And then a point of testing, you know, with a king of king of Sodom. Hey, just just take, give me my people back. And he says, no, I won't take anything that's not mine. How different Jacob is, right? But throughout the book, you hear uh, God say, I am the God of Abraham, this stud of the faith who believes, you know, look at the stars. Your descendants will be as many as them. Right. And he believes that. Right. Right. And he go and even the story of Isaac, he takes his son and, and God says, go to a mountain, which I will show you. Doesn't even know which one, nope. where he's going. Stay later. But living a life of it, not perfect, you know, blows it with Abimelech and Pharaoh. But what a stud. And then what a bum Jacob is. But that's the God we serve. Right. He's the God of the studs of the faith and the gods of the bums of the faith. Right. He's the God of grace to me. And I'm so glad he's not just the God of Abraham. Otherwise I'm out cold. Right. 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 But, you know, I'm Jacob sometimes. We're all Jacob oh, yeah. sometimes. Right. And, and, and so I'm glad for the grace. And then uh, to tell you the story, I, I took a friend of mine to the movie this week, uh, the avatar number two. Throughout that movie, they use this phrase. I see you. 
I see you to indicate what kind of heart you have, who you are. I understand you. I trust you. And this whole phrase seems to be stolen from this book. I see you. God is the one who sees you, said was a theme in Hagar. You know, he sees Hagar. It says in chapter 16, I see you. I see your circumstances. And we're going to read about this in 24. When he comes on Isaac, uh, Eliezer, he's at the well of the God who sees me. Yes. He sees our circumstances and he sees me and he knows what we need. And Hagar, Hagar, when she's there in the desert, she has a great testimony. It's a little bit like Thomas's testimony. When Thomas is doubting Thomas, but has such a great testimony, he says, my Lord and my God. So he has this incredible testimony. Lonely Hagar on the side of the road says, I can't believe I've seen God and I can still live. He is the God who sees. Sees. Yeah. Right. He knows, knows what I'm going through and understands. I think one more, as you were talking about, one more, more thought. When, when in that passage in Genesis 15, when Abraham is doubting God to his face, and God says, and he, rec- says he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and then he doubts again. He's just like the guy in, in Mark who says, I do believe. Help me, my, help me in my unbelief. Okay, since Jim brought up C, you made the comment when Abraham said that God would provide, and it was really C. Right. Now, being the type, C to it. C, being the type of person I am, I started doing some research already right here. Wait a and fact checking, real time. Fact checking, and you were correct that the word is C, but you didn't go far enough. Okay, that it's a very different kind of C. It is seeing with the mind's eye. The light bulb came on, and just looking up very quickly, it also references the Greek word horeo, which John uses in chapter twenty when he's standing in the tomb and he looks and he said, I saw and believed. And the whole thing right there is it's the same concept of seeing, but it's coming in his mind's eye that he is comprehending. He has just had an epiphany of what's going on. So I think Abraham and John had the same experience of seeing and understanding what was going on with God's salvation. That's great. Joe. As, as I look at uh, Genesis this year, there's a whole big world out there happening around Abraham. You know, those, the people are still back in Ur, Ur the Chaldeans, and there's uh, everything happened in Mesopotamia. We know a lot's going on in Egypt. And what's God doing? He's put this under a microscope so that we're watching the beginning of the building of his nation. Yeah. And we're dealing with one man today. Yeah. Abraham. And then, as I've mentioned, we're going to move on and it's going to be Isaac. Chapter 17, he says, not only does God promise him, he names him just like he ends up naming John the Baptist and he names Jesus. He names Isaac. Yes. God names Isaac. And he said, I will fulfill my covenant through him. Yeah. All right. So now we're razor focused on Isaac next week. That's right. And then we're going to move on to Jacob. So all of the rest of the world is out there doing whatever they're doing. Right. And God is, he's focused us on these four patriarchs. Yeah. And then we're going to, we're going to come through Jacob, as we said, and then Joseph, and we're going to see again, his plan unfold. So when Jacob with his 70 family uh, goes into Egypt and 420 years later, a nation is built and brought out. And God says, there it is. This is it. This is the plan. 
Yeah, it's amazing. That's the transition from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12. He is dealing with nations and 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 the world and the, the earth. And, the, and now we're just going to talk about one family. But, you know, as you're talking about that, it made me think, you know, the, how the candle of faith was flickering out in Genesis 11 before it came up. And then it, it, and there's another pattern, another part of the symphony that when Abraham leaves and goes to Egypt and he says, I'm kind of done here. You can have the promise. You can have the promise. Then you get the promise. Abraham is like taking the candle and tends. I'm going to put it out. And God resurrects it. But then when God says, go up to the mountain, sacrifice your son. But until Abraham knew, and he had some faith in the that this God was going to figure this out. But until that, it was like Abraham is hearing God saying, this whole thing, I'm going to, I'm going to snuff out the candle myself. I'm going to sniff it out. And of course he doesn't. Praise the Lord, right? He has a plan for redemption for all of us, right? So, all right, with that, let's, let's close in prayer because it's 9.15. Thank you, Lord God, that you do have a plan of redemption for us, that your plan was to send your son, your son, your only son, whom you love, to take our place, to walk through the pieces for us and be the sacrifice for our sins. Thank you that we, through faith we can have life in you and we can know that you are the God who knows, the God who sees, knows what we're going through in your mind's eye. We appreciate that, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com Stay tuned for our next episode and remember on your worst days you're never beyond the reach of God's grace and on your best days you're never beyond the need of God's grace See you next time